0: On this episode of this calling.
1: If this if this is indeed your calling, do it anyway. Trust that God will provide a way. And as long as you have a strong network of support, then uh, then this is still uh, a much needed and very rewarding vocation.
0: Welcome to This Calling Conversations about Vocation. I'm Chris Arnold, a Christian who used to be an atheist, a software engineer who became a priest. These are the calling stories of others where they are, how they got there, and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I talk to Father Kevin Olds. Father Kevin is a priest in the Episcopal Church serving St. Timothy's in Fairfield, Connecticut. Like me, Father Kevin was formerly a software engineer. Father Kevin felt the call to seminary in the Methodist Church before encountering monasticism, coming right to the threshold of the monastery, and eventually ordination in the Episcopal Church. Here's our conversation Hello, Kevin. Welcome to this calling. How are you?
1: I'm doing well, Chris. How are you today?
0: I'm okay. It's beautiful, sunny warm day here. Uh, we have, um, uh, my wife and I bought a new tree a few days ago, and that's going to be delivered soon. So I have to go out and do some prep work in our front yard before it gets delivered. So that's this afternoon's uh, plan. <laughs> and it's going right. to be, it's gonna be uh, warm. So
1: Good honest labor. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. So you're a priest somewhere. Where Where do you serve?
1: So I am serving at St. Timothy's on the Hill in Fairfield, Connecticut, which is in uh, southwestern Connecticut.
0: Okay. So Yankees territory, not Red Sox territory.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think once you pass the Connecticut River, then it starts to get pretty sketchy.
0: (laughs) Sketchy. So I grew up in the suburbs of Boston. (laughs) And I know that there's there's this dividing line right down the middle of the state where uh, you're either oriented towards New York or towards Boston.
1: That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I, uh, my previous parish, I served in Saugus, Massachusetts. So, oh. uh, yeah, I got okay. to, to live in the orbit of Boston for about, uh, six and a half years. Yeah.
0: Well, my sister for a while when she, uh, was married, lived in Lynn. So we got up to the North Shore oh. quite a lot. Sure. So tell me your life story. How did you get to be a priest? You weren't, you weren't born a priest, I assume.
1: No, no. They, uh, and it didn't, uh, you know, it didn't happen by, by, by acclamation. Uh, So I was uh, born in upstate New York, uh, Syracuse in the near Lake Ontario. And my first church memory was of being in Sunday school. in what I found out later was a fundamentalist independent Baptist church. Oh, and, uh, I don't, we weren't there very long, apparently. I think my parents stopped going because there was some kind of schism or scandal or something. And so while I was raised in a Christian household, I wasn't a churchgoer until my teenage years when a friend invited me to the youth group at his church, uh, which was also a Baptist church, but an American Baptist church. So that's when I really started to get um, indoctrinated in the faith, I'll say, in a broad sense. Um But uh, after college, you know, in college, I fell away from church as many uh, college kids do. After college, I started my career in IT. I was a computer programmer for my first vocation. And I did that for several years. and along the way, I did try to, to start going back to church again. and I found that my uh, uh, the Baptist Church near where I lived, at that time I was in New Jersey. I tried going, it just didn't didn't fit anymore. You know, I, I was at a point in my life where sort of black and white answers to things really didn't make sense with the lived experience of of the world. And so I looked on the uh, Google Maps, and um, although in those days it might not have been Google Maps, I'll have to see, it might have been Alta Vista. Map,
0: map Quest?
1: <laughs> yeah, it could have been MapQuest. yeah. And uh, I wanted to see what churches were within walking distance my apartment, because that was really the primary important thing. And there was a Methodist church and there was an Episcopal church. I didn't know anything about either one. And I chose the Methodist church because I liked their service time better. So I walked into the the, the Methodist church and I really uh, enjoyed it and felt embraced by it because they much more lived in this sort of world of grays rather than black and white. And you were allowed to question things instead of just being told, what to think, on various issues. And it was once I started getting more involved in the life of the church uh, that then things started to change. And what I mean by that is I started to realize that what I was doing with my life in terms of my profession wasn't necessarily uh, matching up with what I thought the most important things in life were anymore. As a- Consultant, I was mainly helping large companies make even more money than they already had. That really wasn't doing anything to make the world a better place. It was the work I was doing through the church that was really what was making sense to me as what not only would make the world a better place, but what God was intending for the world to be. And I had uh, one of the sort of crystalline moments that I had is a uh, my parents had passed away, but they'd left me with this life game plan, which was uh, you get a good education, you get a good paying job, you get married, you buy a house, you have kids, you give them a good education. If you live long enough, you do the grandparent thing. And then, you know, you check out life, life success. So um, I hadn't gotten married, but uh, I was like, well, I'll buy a house. By life, you know, I'll find, you know, I'll finally achieve something if I buy a house. So I bought a house really one block from the church, actually. And uh, I had in my mind that once I had mowed my own lawn for the first time, I'll have, you know, sort of in in, the, in today's terms, we'd say like, you know, a life achievement unlocked. Right. We didn't have that language then. And uh, so I did it. I mowed my own lawn. And I was sitting in the backyard drinking a beer and it I had this sort of flash of insight that I had really accomplished nothing so far with my life. Wow. And that was really where I started the journey of wondering what, what is it that I should be doing? And thankfully the pastor at that Methodist church, uh, not only was she a good conversation partner, but she, she had really broached the subject to me about what uh, a vocation to ministry could be. Cause I hadn't even really figured out how to think with those categories yet and uh, I was open to, to the Spirit's prompting and dropped my net to follow Jesus which means I quit IT to go to seminary had faith that somehow I would still be able to make a mortgage payment because <laughs> <laughs> I just bought a house right um, and so I started at uh, Drew Theological School in Madison, New Jersey as a Methodist in 2005 and very early on realized that I didn't like what I was seeing. Uh, Drew's a very liberal school. And while they certainly, I think, are in the right place when it comes to social justice issues, they don't do a good job with the whole Jesus business. So I felt very uncomfortable. <laughs> and over the first break, semester break, I was looking for something to go do. and. I thought, I'll go to a monastery. That's what I'll do. Monks seem very holy. I'll go spend my my seminary break with the monks. So I looked around, and I found the Society of St. John the Evangelist, those
0: Mm. in Cambridge. Mm -hmm.
1: And I walked in for the first time to the chapel there, and my mouth dropped open, and I thought, I'm home. And thus started my journey to the Episcopal Church, which I thought for a couple of years was going to be my journey to SSJE. I was in discernment with them. And uh, now we're, we're getting into, by 2007, spring of 2007, I was, in my mind, uh, thought, well, this is, you know, this is pretty much it. I, I mean, I'm going to graduate in a year with my MDiv, and then I'm going to become a monk. And I went uh, for another trip to SSJE, and this was just five days of basically one-on-one meetings with the brothers, sort of, you know, the two or three trips before I was going to go to test my vocation. And for some reason, I didn't feel like I had been feeling when I went to visit them. It was as if, if, you've, if you can have the image in your mind of trying to drag a dog along by the leash and he doesn't want to go and he puts it down, that was very much sort of the feeling I was having inside me. And I didn't know why. And I was really mad about it. Uh, Cause I had this all planned out. I was ready, but something inside me was saying no. So I left, it was, uh, it was Memorial day weekend. And I left because on, uh, on Tuesday I was going to be starting my uh, CPE summary unit. So Tuesday I show up at the hospital and, um, Meet the other people in my cohort, and I met uh, the woman who would one day become my wife, and that is why I'm not a monk. Uh, so I finished. Drew ended up going to. Well, I did a, then a year of CP residency. By that time, I had you know I'd, I'd be long become Episcopal, but I needed my Anglicanization. So then I went to General Seminary for an STM degree and then was uh, was ordained and then went to Saugus, which is where we kind of started the conversation. So that is, uh, that, that's the, the winding trail of what brought me first towards ministry, but then specifically to the Episcopal church.
0: That is, uh... <laughs> so as you were sharing your story, here's <laughs> what I was um, tripping over and chuckling to myself before I became a priest. I was also a software engineer. I was a Java mm-hmm. Java application engineer, um, and I really became a Christian um, kind of holistically. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I was baptized at a very young age, but I, I, my conversion moment was was coming out of a particularly bad relationship in my late twenties, and one of the responses that I had for that was uh, that I began exploring a, a monastic vocation with SSJE and they ah. said, they said uh, we'd love to talk to you, but you've just gotten out of this bad relationship. Mm-hmm. Here's some stuff to read. Stop by when you're back in town. Cause I, you know, like I said, I grew up in the outskirts of, boston so i was back there a lot and i'd always go to visit with them or stay with them for a few days um and they said you know we'll give it a year before Mm -hmm. we start anything more detailed and of course during that year uh i met the woman who later became my wife so (laughs) Mm -hmm. no uh there's a lot of parallels in our stories what sort of programmer were you
1: oh well um Mainly web development. So you know, in those days, Java, JavaScript, HTML, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, ASP.net. When when I got out, ASP.net was kind of a big thing. And and then because it was a consulting company around the edges of that web development, occasionally they would just throw me into some other project because they needed more manpower. And so I found myself doing some, you know, some server-side stuff and mm-hmm. a lot of um of technical team lead things and th- things I hadn't been trained for, but things they figured I was smart enough to figure out how to do, and that they could continue to build the cu- build the customer for. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that sounds familiar. Uh huh. So, I want to go back to um, to your relationship with with religion when you were sort of college age and younger. Mm-hmm. You, you had this early memory at this. Sunday school in the ind- uh, independent Baptist church,
1: a fundamentalist independent Baptist church. Um, Remember, it had uh, the the pews had lime green upholstery on them. Wow,
0: yeah, sounds horrible.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, did you have any
0: kind of sense in your mind of kind of who God was at that point, or
1: yeah, uh, it stayed pretty stable you know until kind of into those teenage years but for me god was this supreme sovereign being who was in control of everything uh and that was very much the god of my father Uh, that was you know the dad's view on life was somehow everything got here and however that was whoever did that i'm going to respect and fear uh, my mom was much more the Jesus side of the picture, the softer love part. So I mm-hmm. uh, feel, feel like I had kind of two parts of the equation going on, uh, but it was very much sort of a delineation between God the Father, powerful, far away, do not anger him, and this Jesus loves you, and we love you too, and it's all going to be okay.
0: It seems like that's kind of an ongoing struggle in Christianity to integrate those two, uh, I think, both perfectly reasonable aspects of our relationship to to the divine. Sure. Um, But so you took that into college, or had you already kind of started to leave it behind –
1: Well, during my teenage years, after I started going to that that youth group and I got involved in that, in the American Baptist Church, I still had the very similar idea of who God was. Um, It wasn't until I got to college, because growing up in a small town is very homogeneous. You know, we all looked the same. We all thought the same on various topics. And there wasn't a much of lived experience that didn't match up with sort of our understanding of the divine. Mm -hmm. We would have used those kinds of words, but once I got to college um, and sort of everything that goes along with that, it didn't seem to resonate with how I'd been taught to believe not about God, but also about you know any number of other things that go on uh, when your world's very small. And so in that dissonance, uh, I fell away from being a, a churchgoer. I still... I've never not believed in God, but you know, the the particularities of of who that was and and how he's in relationship with with that creation, you know, those things have changed over time.
0: So your college years, was that would is that more that you were just experimenting and exploring new aspects of your life and you were just busy or were you rejecting something? Were you Leaving church behind for a while, or a little of both
1: I would see I would say a little of both. For one thing, my world had gotten huge, right? Yeah. Just in terms of people and knowledge and understanding the uh, more about sort of how, what the world is and how it operates. And then so just from that purely, the looking at things through a lens of faith, that that sort of dropped farther down the priority list. But then also when I would go to church, you, you know, and when you're, you know, when you're 18, 19, you think, you know, everything anyway. And so, then on time, you know, I'm getting this wonderful education at this, at this small liberal arts college. And uh, I obviously know more than this this guy who's in the pulpit. Like, who is he to tell me about X, Y, or Z? And so uh, it became sort of a partially an intellectual uh, pushing back. like. Hmm. I
0: hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh but you carried you carried into your 20s the sense of uh purpose. You said there was this kind of tension, you know, the buying the house and realizing that cutting mm. the the grass wasn't providing that's, that's not the meaning of life right there. And neither is being a software engineer. I also had that moment where I thought, you know, if I work another 60 hour week, then the team in the next room will be able to work, you know, 3% more efficiently. And that might translate to a 16th of a cent bump in the stock price. Right. uh, For my 60 hours of work. And I just, ran out of steam after a while. Um, but the order of things, you know, I started trying to evaluate what I was going to do with my life. And later kind of that led me towards, um, well, towards eventually what became seminary. But so you somehow had this sense that there was more to life than what you were doing.
1: Where yeah. Well, there for me life not only my life but all of our lives like there has to be meaning here there has to be something that integrates it all together it can't just be randomized without purpose i mean that, that there there's the scariest thing of all wouldn't be that that there there is no god per se but that there is no meaning to any of this and that that is the, the truly terrifying idea so there there always has to have been a meaning or a purpose to what's going on, on a small scale, on a grand scale, and uh, when I wasn't consciously thinking about about God as the lens through which to interpret all these things, I did have that sort of how to make a good life formula that my parents had given me. So that's what I was trying to to operate off of to bring to bring meaning and purpose to my life. Uh, but it's really once I started to have more intentional and. Um, meaningful interactions with people through, through being involved with the ministries of the church, that then it's almost like the, the, the pyramid of how to um, value and prioritize what's going on. You're like a turn on his head at that point. And that's when I realized that there is great meaning and purpose, but it's not what I thought it was necessarily. And things didn't sort of the, the the software programming of, of creation was not the operating system that I thought.
0: So what did you end up valuing? What did you discover was really like driving you into this next stage of your life?
1: Mm. It's that, uh, and I've kept this with me, uh, even through more you know, theological nuancing as, as the years could drive by, but it's that we live in a world of great brokenness, and that it is the purpose of all of us together to heal that brokenness. And that that healing is ultimately rooted in, in Jesus Christ. Um, and that that needs to be the lens through which we're looking at all these things.
0: So you became a Methodist for a while, and then you went off to Drew.
1: Yeah, so I went to Drew. uh, And then when I got to, after doing the CPE residency, I went to General. Then I found that then they kind of, the pendulum had swung in the other direction. They really got this Jesus business right. But they weren't as good on the social justice stuff, I felt, at the time. And so between the two, between Drew and General, uh, I really felt like I had a, a well-rounded theological education. So, when you went off to
0: Drew, it, it's what's the process like in Methodist circles? Can, do you just decide that you're uh-huh. going to go to seminary and and figure it out from there? Because in the Episcopal Church, normally, you know, as he, you know, I don't know if listeners know, but normally you kind of go through this discernment process. In your parish, and then at the diocesan level, and then your bishop says, "All right, now I grant you permission to pursue a seminary education." But not every church does it that way.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, you're 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 spot on about that. But um, so in the in the Methodist system, it's it can be the, quite the opposite. You know, you have a calling, you decide that you're going to go to seminary, and you go. Uh, but that's not necessarily tethered to the ordination process, and. I started those things just about at the same time uh, of being officially in the ordination process and attending seminary. And um, that ended up, and I didn't really understand the timing of things uh, as I was pursuing those, those those two tracks. And um, I wouldn't have been, even if I had graduated with my MDiv as a Methodist, I still, I wouldn't have been, at the, at the right time for ordination so I still would have had to kind of twiddle my thumbs for a bit and, and process to play out mm-hmm.
0: So what did you discover about uh, the monastic life that 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 you carry with you now? I mean you mm-hmm. obviously you were attracted, drawn to it, called to it to a, to, to the threshold at least by yeah. God for for some reason. Um, even though that's not where you wound up, I, I assume that God kind of brought you there for for to learn something that you hopefully carry with you now.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, and, and it's been the monastic for me was uh, a set of experiences that then I needed to figure out what they were right. Like the experience of of being in prayer and something inside of me becoming very quiet and attentive. That's the experience, and then you know later on, me needing to figure out, well, what is what does that mean? What you know, what just happened to me basically, and why was it so good? Uh, so, understanding my own need for for stillness and quiet and contemplation, and how much that feeds my soul. Uh, I'm very much a, a an introvert on the Myers Briggs scale, which has made, of course, being in public ministry always a a running joke, <laughs> 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 and, <clears throat> and also a challenge, a life challenge. Of as someone who was felt like I was, I was there. I was like, as you said, I was on the doorstep, and then realized that I was called not. I was called to intimacy, not in form of community, but in terms of relationship, one-on-one relationship. And where that has been a real struggle for me since I do still have inside me that desire for a monastic rhythm and depth of my life is that, you know, in addition to being married is I had two young kids hmm. and it is not easy Um uh, both my boys uh, two boys, and both of them, uh, in their own way, have special needs. My older son zach is is autistic and he's um, he's very verbal um, but you know he's never had an emotion that he didn't put on display in front of everybody hmm. so that's a challenge uh, and uh, my other boy Tom, has a very rare congenital heart defect, uh, so whereas Zach's presence is very acute in some ways. Um, The the anxiety that I carry with me about Tommy Tommy is always in the background, but it's always there kind of like this white noise of stress.
0: Hmm.
1: And so it's just for someone who had, who learned that he very much enjoyed and was nourished by rhythm and quiet and diving, diving deep, uh, into sort of the mysteries of life and the, the stillness of God. Um, it's Olympic. Uh, someone else put it as uh, Olympic level parenting. It feels like. So I don't know if I answered your question there. I just kind of wandered around. That's fine.
0: was a good answer. I'll take it. Thank you. Okay. So how do you balance that need for, um, prayer or stillness or contemplation with all the demands of your life, not just family, but, you know, the, the work that we do as parish priests. Sure.
1: Well, I get up uh, before anybody else in the house. So, and I, I realized that I've started to become my father. I had memories of my dad. He would get up at like, even after he'd retired from, from working, he would get up at like five in the morning and he would sit at the, kitchen table and he would drink coffee and play solitaire and uh (laughs) i started started to become that except it's uh instead of solitaire it's uh it's prayer time so i i have my sort of my morning routine of of prayer time and uh sort of trying to enliven my brain a little bit and uh, a little bit of exercise and that kind of that that's an anchor point for me and then also being able to come i'm we're broadcasting from uh, my office at the church, and my office work is something that, that grounds me as well. Um, you know, I've got a, I have a, I have a prayer space in the corner, and uh, our sanctuary here is is lovely. And so, I find time to to go in and have another touchstone during the day, hmm. and then I'm blessed at, at least at this point in my ministry to be in a. A stunningly beautiful location and so trying to be very mindful of uh of the beauty that's around me even if it's just walking across the parking lot from the church to the rectory of taking notice of uh the birds are tweeting the sun is on my face i can smell those flowers of just always being um, trying to be always mindful i think that's probably the the best catch-all word for it do you have
0: favorite Kind of spiritual authors, or schools of prayer, or even books of the Bible that that uh, uh, reflect your own spiritual inclinations, mm-hmm. or that are guides for you.
1: Well, I'm uh, I, I'm a bit of a liturgy nerd, uh, so I I try to collect prayer books from you know around the communion and and uh, and elsewhere, and so I enjoy. So I'll, I'll, I'll be in a place spiritually where let's say that it is the BCP that is really what's, you know, for, for morning prayer, that's really what's feeding me. And then I'll enter into a season where that's feeling dry, but you know what? The Australian prayer book, you know, because of some of the ways it does things a little differently, that's feeling as if it's enlivening. So I'll do that now. So I just, I enjoy. On on one hand, I enjoy the uh, sameness of liturgy, but on the other hand, I enjoy having some variety that will speak to where I am in that season of life.
0: Hmm. What about beyond liturgy?
1: Well, so now this, this trades into sort of what's going on in my life right now. I'm, um, I'm pursuing a THD. And so. A lot of my, I'm I'm sort of blending my spiritual reading with my school reading, (laughs) going on because there's only so many pages your eyes can go over in a day. Yeah, Uh, but one of the one of the authors that I'm finding is feeding both parts of me. I think both my my academic need and my spiritual need at the moment is Leonard Sweet. He's he's a a part of the Methodist tribe, a church historian by training, and a, a uh, futurist by vocation. And uh, most of his works now have to do with semiotics, uh, you know, reading the signs around us and drawing meaning out of that. And um, I find that that's very uh, enriching for me right now.
0: Tell me about this THD. What's what's this all about?
1: Yeah. So it's it's a new kind of uh, I mean, the THD degree itself isn't new, but the way they're approaching it is new. It's through Evangelical Seminary, which is in uh, Myerstown, Pennsylvania. And it it academically is very much um, a THD, but the way they're structuring it, it's a hybrid structure, so you can still do it while you're being a, being a priest at a parish. Uh, so it's a three-year program. There's there are up to like six or seven different tracks now. The track that I'm doing is called Semiotics and Spirit. So it's theology. And, uh, sort of the, if there was a scriptural motto for, for this track, it's when Jesus says to the Pharisees that you, you can read the, the signs of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the time. And, uh, that's, that's part of what this is, is, uh, the is about, is trying to read the signs of the times and see where is the Holy Spirit active. And, uh, you know, what is that sort of, that, um, that that holy that the divine fingerprint that is sort of giving away that the spirit is active and present, and uh, and then how do we go about revealing that to folks? It's I find it to be very exciting, but uh, it's not. It, I, don't, I don't think it would resonate with everyone without having substantive conversation to try to explain it.
0: <laughs> well, give it uh, give it a few minutes at least. State your case for why we should care about what you're studying. Okay. All right. <laughs> It'll be good practice for you, if nothing else.
1: Yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. This is sort of my, my semiotics elevator speech. Yeah. Um, your abstract. My abstract. Yeah, exactly. So, for example, um, would be a good place to start. Well, uh, here, I'll, I'll tell you about the last paper I wrote. So I want to read the signs of our liturgy as, as Episcopalians and decide what, what does our, what can our liturgy tell us about how we are supposed to engage the society around us? So I looked at, well, all right. The bread during Holy Eucharist is the body of Christ. And we as uh, the local parish are gathered as the body of Christ. Could something about what we do with the bread in worship inform us about how we should be interacting with the community around us? Okay. So then I looked at, well, well, what happens with the bread? And as we all know, it is taken and blessed and broken and shared. Okay. You know what? That's how we're called to be, too. As a worshiping community, we are taken. We are, we are gathered by God together. We are blessed as we worship. We are broken in that we are then dispersed into our individual and family units. And we are shared with the community around us. In the Eucharist, we are, uh, you know, we are fed by that bread. And we, as the body of Christ, are feeding the community around us. And uh, that's, there's one example of looking at the, the signs of what we're doing and then using those signs to point towards what we should be doing. In, uh, in the world. And I'm hoping to do more and more of that, but that's like, that's the last paper I wrote. Hmm.
0: So why are you pursuing this THD? Do you, do you have a kind of a, a career or a vocational goal or is this just something to do, you know, <laughs> in addition to all the other stuff you have going on, you thought a doctorate would, <laughs> would make a good
1: hobby. My nefarious purposes. Um, <laughs> uh, so this is sort of my way of wrestling with uh, what is going on with, you know, the institutional church, other than that it's you know, a raging dumpster fire. Um, so, you know, <laughs> we're, of course, as everyone knows, we're, we're losing scads of people. You know, churches are closing. And by and large, the institutional response has been, I don't know what to do well, maybe semiotics can give us an idea of what to do. Um, God is certainly active and present out in, in the world and in the churches. And maybe we need to be looking a little more at what God is already actively doing and finding out how we, he can join in that. Mm. So sort of reading reading the signs and, and then trying to, to enter into what's already going on. So this is sort of, I'm hoping this is sort of my response or at least my (laughs) cathartic endeavor in response to um, into the decline of the institutional church.
0: I've been hearing that uh, in a lot of places. The, the idea that the, the spirit of God is already working beyond the bounds of the institutional church. And we've got to discover that and align with God's will that is now already working beyond the church. Um, I've run into that in a lot of places over the last couple of years. It seems to be gaining currency as an idea. The question that always pops into my mind when I hear it is, um, "What is what is different now in these last couple of decades compared to the last fifteen hundred years?" Um, is it's is that is that the work that the church always has to be doing? That God's God's spirit is working um uh, all over the place all the time and in each generation we have to rediscover what that is, or has something changed in the last few decades? You know, was was the spirit of God more actively present in the church before and now we've let something go, so the Spirit of God has just moved somewhere else, and now we've got to kind of run to catch up. And I don't know what the answer is to that, but it's that's the provocative question that pops into my mind. Like, is this now how – is that describing what we've always done, or did did we drop the ball somewhere and God said, well, I'm going to take the Spirit and go mm-hmm. somewhere else?
1: That's uh, a great question. And I think it, it's born out of uh, all this whole conversation is born out of us trying to make sense of what we see around us. Right. Yeah. As I said, like the, the, the worst possible answer is that it, that there is no way to make sense of this. So we're trying to figure out, OK, what's what's a theory that fits the facts? Uh, and to, to address the question directly, I, it's, I don't think it's what the church has always been doing um and I don't also don't think that you know the church is basically like an airplane that God has taken the engine out of and gone and taken the engine somewhere else. Uh, but I think that I think that the gap between the church and you know the culture, of course has been growing like this. And in not only decades past but in millennia past, uh you know it, it, they were much closer together. Um, at times being, you know, an an incredible amount of overlap. So I don't, I don't think that the the spirit has abandoned the church. Um, but I think that there's gotta be more going on than what we're seeing. And I don't think the, the, the way to make meaning or the answer to all this is just that, ah, you know, the, the, the need or the reason for the church being around is gone. And so the church is going away. I don't think right either. Um, but yeah, like you said there's uh there's there's no real answers for this question, I think.
0: My suspicion and I guess we'll find out over, you know, I think this this corona tied suspension of the churches is going to be very instructive once we're able to regather again and we see who comes back and why. Um my sense is that there is, you know, that the the church in its very earliest days, had this kind of central proclamation that, you know, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and that changes everything. Um, And a small percentage of people resonated with that. They needed to hear that, and that provided an answer to their existential crisis. Over time, the church added on the ability to provide things in addition to that, proclamation. And people became attracted to the church, not because of that proclamation, but because of the extra stuff. You know, the church became very good at uh, being a, a vehicle for social respectability. So people who were drawn to social respectability became part of the church, not because Jesus is risen from the dead, but because you know, it was a good place to be seen, to be respectable. Or the church provided a great aesthetic experience, music and beauty and art. And uh, so the people who came to church for, drawn for those reasons would stay for those reasons. Um, or the church would provide emotional consolation or a sense of fellowship with with people in a kind of a bomb against loneliness or uh, a kind of easy, out-of-the-box social environment. When I uh, – my, my first parish was in southeast Kentucky, um, in one of those towns where most of the people who were there had lived there for generations, you know, and the Episcopal Church in town was made up mostly of people who had come from away for some reason. Mm-hmm. And so they moved into this place where uh, they didn't have – and they couldn't really get into the social networks because, you know, if your family hadn't known all the other families in the Valley for generations, they didn't really kind of have room for you in their social lives. So all the people who were newcomers uh, flocked to a church, uh, one of several churches, and that became their social environment and their network of friends and their, uh, their fellowship. Um, and so now I think we live, uh, and I think those all those reasons are valid reasons for the church to exist. The church, you know, um, should be able to provide many things for the soul, you know? Um, but I think now we live in an age where many of those uh, needs can be provided elsewhere. Um and maybe can be provided elsewhere without a lot of the other baggage that comes along with church.
1: Yeah. I think there's going to be uh, consequences uh, unforeseen coming out of this. Uh, I think our ability to to come back together again in person is, is just the first step on what's going to be a a long and continuing to be strange road. So do you hope to teach somewhere? Oh, you know, maybe someday that would be, that would be nice. I, I'm not ready to be out of the parish. Um, mm-hmm. What I'm hoping for first is that if, if I were to come out of this THD with a sort of a workable methodology, mm-hmm. I'd have to go about as a, as a faith community, reading the signs of your community, uh, then I would want to, um, you know, do workshops, things like that. Um, I'm blessed to be in a diocese where the uh, administration already understands that whatever church is going to be in the future, it's not what it is right now, and it's not what it has been. And so there's a certain amount of flexibility to, to think outside the box, at least. Um, and so you know, this might be a place where I, I could find some ways to um, bring, a, bring a theory to practical application.
0: Bring a blessing back to the church. Tell me about about your parish, St. Timothy's.
1: St. Timothy's, yeah. So, um, in Fairfield, there are several Episcopal churches, and the newest one is St. Timothy's. We just two years ago we turned fifty years old, and the the unique thing about St. Timothy's is the location because we are up on a hill in the woods. Away from, you know, we're on the edge of town, basically, away from everything else. And by design, because this neighborhood was created so that people could be off in the woods and away from everybody else. Which was fine when you planted it in 1968 uh, for, you know, all the, the Episcopalians who were up here and didn't want to go down the hill into town. But it's a challenge now because you will never get any, uh, you never find us by accident. You had mm-hmm. to really come here. And the neighborhood these days is not one that's built around, you know, the, the church that's down the street. And so there's a lot of, a lot of challenges in terms of that. Not that the the attractional model of church really works anymore anyway, but it it doubly doesn't work in a place like this.
0: So what's the solution? I wonder, you set yourself up as a retreat center if you're out in the woods.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's that, that's one of the dreams. Uh, (laughs) have a large campus we have walking trails in the woods and all that well you know we have we got all sorts of good stuff um but uh that's still a dream that's in process we're not not ready for that yet
0: um you should just buy up all the houses in the neighborhood around and uh, start a cult compound
1: well you know there <laughs> there, is, there is a house uh, across the street that went for sale and we did think about it uh but we uh we couldn't get our ducks in a row fast enough and decide. But anyway, so that that's—I mean—we can certainly, as it is now, we do day retreats and you know, weddings and this, 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 and that. You know, all the usual kind of revenue generation stuff that a church would do. But the the larger answer is that this would need to be a place that has a very specific and unique Christian identity that other Christians. Uh, would then find out about and make it their home. Hmm. Um, That presents a challenge in itself because I can't just say your identity will now be that comes out of the community. And, and that's, that's a difficult thing to make to uh, a difficult process to shepherd to completion here.
0: I have found that to be perhaps the hardest aspect of being a parish priest. That unlike, you know, m- the the corporate environment where I worked before seminary, um, where the management team would would say this is the direction we're heading, mm. and we are paying you to to get on board with our vision, parish priests have to listen carefully for the identity to come out of the congregation, yeah, which can be very frustrating because there are usually multiple competing identities, sure. And it takes a long time to kind of discern, to distill what the one identity is, and then kind of reflect it back on the community. Um, So I think it's one of the biggest lessons that I had to learn in the first few years, because I came right out of seminary. I don't know if this is true for you as well. Right out of seminary full of all my good ideas that i have been rehearsing for a couple of years. And I walked in and I said, you know, here's our plan. And everyone said, Nope. Thank you. (laughs) That, uh, that's not us.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally get it. You know, when you, when you come, when you come shooting out of, out of seminary, you're, you're ready. You've got, you've got, I just need the blank canvas to make it happen.
0: Yeah. I've been training for this. Put me in, put me in, coach. <laughs> uh, so, what is your advice to someone who's considering uh, a career change, for instance, from software engineering to
1: church mm-hmm. ministry? My advice, I think, would be to be comfortable with the idea of being bivocational. Hmm. Uh, just from a purely dollars and cents point of view, I, 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 think that in a lot of places we've come to the end of where being a professional clergy person means that you have a full-time salary. Um, that's just sort of the, the grim reality of it uh, in terms. So that's, that's the pragmatic piece. The advice I would give spiritually is, if this if this is indeed your calling, do it anyway. Trust trust that God will provide a way, and and as long as you have a strong network of support, and in this day and age, that doesn't even necessarily mean that it has to be you know in your town, but as long as you have a strong network of of support of people who can who can think with you, who can um, tell you that you're you're going crazy and you need to check yourself and, and who invite the same from you, then, uh, then this is still uh, a much needed and very rewarding vocation.
0: So what changes do we need to make across the Episcopal church to get ready for bivocational uh, ministry to become more mainstream than it is? I don't know if you feel qualified to answer that, but since you brought it up, I'm going to yeah. throw it out. Oh, well,
1: my being qualified <laughs> for a topic has little to do with my weighing in on it. a <laughs> boy. <Attaboy. laughs> so uh, I think what we need to do to get ready for that is is something that has been long overdue. And that is that we need to do a better job of forming the laity to take responsibility for many aspects of parish life. Uh, because if if you're not going to be in a situation where, you know, let's say you can have yoked parishes and so you're still a full-time individual, then it's going to have to be that with your X number of hours a week executing your priestly functions, that you have good boundaries. And that means that you do this, you do X, Y, and Z, but you do not do A, B, and C. And that means that the laity need to be the ones who do a, B and C. Uh, so that's that kind of formation in some places is desperately needed. Cause in you know, depending on the, the charism of parish, you still have a lot of places that are, um, you know, not only father knows best, but also father's the one who does it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's going to be a, uh, uh, a vital set of skills that, uh, that, We'll need to explore, and and I think a um, a modification in our expectations of of what churches do during the week. Oh, yeah. Um, In a lot of places. Some places, I think, are ahead of the curve, and other places Mm -hmm. still have a lot of catching up to do. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Uh, So, we're coming up on an hour. So, tell me your pop culture recommendation. I don't want to keep you too Mm -hmm. long. So, what's your... (laughs) What's your recommendation for something fun to take our mind off everything that's going on in the world?
1: Oh, well, um, I recently discovered and was really uh, enjoyed watching the good place. Hmm. It ran for, I think it just finished up like this spring. It ran for four seasons. And the basic premise is you've got these four people who um, show up in in the afterlife, and then there's there, it's a it's, it's a sitcom kind of, kind of a thing, but then there are much much hilarity ensues with trying to figure out exactly where they are and sort of what the rules are and and all that all that kind of stuff. And and I think that it's one of the few shows that I've seen in in a long time that uh, has brings with it a, a, a not only important messages about about you know, what happens after you die, but it needs to be fully human. I'll put it, I'll put it that way. And also you just pick up a lot of, of really interesting, um, learnings about, uh, philosophy. So
0: hmm.
1: there's good nation, the good place, the good place on Netflix. Not, I think it's on Netflix right now. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, Kevin, thanks for telling me your uh, life story and sharing your, calling uh with us
1: yeah, absolutely now i'm i'm going to uh i'm going to now use this relationship capital i have with you onto <laughs> on my podcast at some point i didn't know you had a podcast
0: tell us about your podcast kevin
1: so it's uh it's called the Cast, and uh it's it's basically about once a week i just get on and, and rant about some issue for about 10 minutes but everyone I will have a guest on, which then we could rant together for like 20 minutes on on some particular issue, or or
0: even 25.
1: Maybe, maybe we'll see. I'll have to uh, I'll have to do some deep knee bends or something. That's a lot of talking. The
0: Padre Cast, Padre Cast,
1: okay, with, with a cast with a K because Kevin. All right, on, on SoundCloud right now.
0: Well, I'm definitely going to put a link in the show notes. It keeps wanting to take me to The Padre, a 2018 Canadian drama film directed by Jonathan <laughs> Sobel and starring Tim Roth, Nick Nolte, and Lewis Guzman.
1: I've not it's, seen that.
0: Uh, I'll, I'll find the link later. <laughs> yeah, anyway, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll trade uh, podcasts then. Sounds good. And I'll put the link to yours in the show notes and people can read to you uh, that way. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you for listening to my conversation with Father Kevin. You can reach him through the links in the show notes. Check out his podcast, Padre K. You can reach me on Twitter at AppletreePods.com. And on Facebook you can find the page for Apple Tree Podcasts. Feel free to like, subscribe, review and share this with anyone who might be interested. The intro music is called Cheerful by Bird 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 and the closing music that you're hearing in the background right now is St. Mary's Falls by Tom Ganaway. Again, thank you so much for listening. I'm Chris Arnold. I'll talk to you next time on This Calling. Bye for now.